Hey, RareCast listeners. Rare in the Square brings together rare disease innovators each year to forge partnerships and advance innovation. The event takes place in conjunction with the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference and the Biotech Showcase. The annual financial conference is held in San Francisco that kick off the new year in biotech. While both of those events have gone virtual in 2021 because of the pandemic, Global Genes is partnering with the Biotech Showcase to create Rare Beyond the Square this year to highlight rare disease progress and innovation, share information, and facilitate partnering and networking among companies, investors, and rare disease communities. Tune into Rare Beyond the Square, January 11th through the 14th, 2021. You can register at globalgenes.org under the Events tab. Thanks. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. While gene therapies provide great promise for people with rare genetic diseases, the pursuit of these one-time treatments may not seem economically viable to commercial developers. In the case of ultra-rare conditions, the patient populations may be so small that it may not be possible for companies to recoup their investments, let alone make a profit. The nonprofit Columbus Children's Foundation is providing funding and scientific resources to accelerate access to gene therapies for children with ultra-rare genetic disorders. We spoke to Jude Simulski, the gene therapy innovator and chairman and chief science officer of the Columbus Children's Foundation, about how the foundation operates, the range of capabilities it's able to bring together, and the potential to scale what it does to reach more patients in need of treatments. Jude, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. We're going to talk about gene therapies, the work of Columbus Children's Foundation, and the opportunity to accelerate the development and increase the access to these therapies for patients with ultra-rare conditions. You've been both an innovator and an entrepreneur in the gene therapy space. As someone who's understood the potential power of these therapies, what were the concerns about the barriers to developing them or, or getting access to patients who need them? So I think in the beginning, it was access to resources, being able to have resources to do the fundamental development. And as you're probably aware, most, if not all of that, was taking place in academic centers. And as a consequence of that, that meant getting funding from grants or um, through that classic mechanism of NIH funding or through foundations. And, you know, we were able to um, be successful in that until we had the adverse event with Jesse Gelsinger, which kind of caused the entire field to pull back and ensure that we weren't making any type of uh, mistakes or getting ahead of ourselves. And um, after that, it transitioned to um, you know, investors coming into the field, looking at whether it was mature enough or ready to go forward 
And um, that got peaked when some of these things began to show promise, like people regaining vision and or um, the infants that were with terminal diseases were surviving. And then that ended up transitioning to what you would consider the classic boomtown type thing where everybody's trying to dig for gold as to what's going to be next and who's got the head start and things like that. One of the primary objectives that we felt was critical with what we were doing was that the technology um, be available to everyone and not not necessarily be only developed for uh, indications where one could uh, market the drug and be able to uh, collect uh, revenues on it. And so that immediately put us into uh, what was called orphan diseases began to get fragmented into orphan diseases and ultra rare orphan diseases, which uh, a number of people considered at 100 people or fewer in the world. And uh, most of the orphan diseases are considered one in 100,000 or 100,000 patients in the world. Uh, a misnomer in this space is that when they get the name orphan disease, People automatically assume there are not that many individuals, but if you aggregate all of the orphan diseases and put them in one country, it would be the third largest country in the world. So as a whole, there's about 7,000 of these genetic disorders out there that are amongst us. The ultra-orphan diseases, we felt that the technology would be applicable there just as readily as with the more popular diseases such as cystic fibrosis or hemophilia or Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And as a consequence of that, um, we became very uh, obsessed with ensuring that, um, you know, our saying was leave no child behind type scenario with respect to the treatments. And that's kind of the origins of the Columbus Children Foundation. When you think about the economics of gene therapy, what does it take to have an economically viable population from a commercial drug developer's point of view? So I was able to spend a sabbatical for 14 to 16 months at Pfizer and at a Fortune 500 company, their cutoff was 3,000 to 6,000 patients. And they were able to work models that showed that if you had that many, that you could end up making some type of return that justified the investment. Um, if you're not a Fortune 500 company, you can, without you know, very significant overhead, that number of patients drops down to around 500 to 1,000 patients. Below that, people begin to struggle with how do you uh, ensure enough dollars can be made to develop the next drug, and, uh, and they see that as these are these breakpoints. But again, if you aggregate a number of these, you can get to these threshold um, numbers that people have calculated. But realize that all of this can change if the overall cost of goods drops precipitously. And that's a, that's a, a factor that we are um, very, very focused on, which is bringing down the cost so that these lower numbers of patients who carry these ultra-rare diseases can begin to become more attractive from a development perspective. When Columbus Children's Foundation was created, what was the discussion around that? What was the opportunity you saw? To realize it was first um, 
envisioned that this was going to help mostly children. A number of these were children that had cancers that needed to have access to these uh, rare instruments that had um, radiation type capability to treat them. And so it started as a uh, outshoot of that. And then it quickly grew into, there were such uh, rare cancers in availability that um, they were, that structure fell normally as a cloud over the ultra rare diseases of bringing access and availability to these type of diseases where there were small numbers and it needed a concerted effort. Um, we became a critical component of the Columbus Children Foundation because we have pioneered and focused a lot of our attention on the production part of making these therapeutics. And so we felt that if we could be the turnkey component and people came to us with a genetic drug that they thought would work in this ultra rare that we could facilitate it by producing it and making it available back to these uh, patients. So we are a component of what I would say is a relay team that typically starts with parents in or a foundation that's identified their own children or a subset of children that have an ultra rare disease. And then they're looking for a team that can approach this from a clinical perspective. And so that typically refers to um, most of them if they're um, related to neurology and neurologists, clinical team, basic scientists, a genetic team. Then you have your vector team, which is basically people like us. And you end up with a production team, which is like the uh, production site in Spain that we utilize, the Virogen. Uh, gene therapy facility. When you put all of this together, people like Laura Hamid have been instrumental in being field generals that call these different groups together to assimilate them so that they can act on very specific functions that are required to make this fall in place, which is basically get basic researchers to generate um, data in what they refer to as preclinical data to bring to the FDA to show them that it looks like if we can get access to this material and put it in these cells, it'll have a transformative response. And then that's typically coupled with a clinical group that ends up interfacing with a regulatory group. And then you can see it all circles back to the production group that's then requested to make the material with FDA approval. And then you get what's referred to as a uh, investigator new uh, IND uh, drug development is referred to as an IND. And once you have permission to do that, you can start the trial. And so all of these trials are basically focused on safety. But because of gene therapy is we know the answer before we start the therapy. It's essentially, you know what the drug answer is because it's the gene that's not functioning. And I use this analogy all the time. If you are a hemophiliac, putting a muscular dystrophy gene inside of a hemophiliac is not going to change the bleeding disorder. And so we know the answer to the disease. We just have to technically deliver it. And that's what most, if not all, of the focus in the gene therapy field is at the moment. And the technology that we and others have developed uh, flow into the Columbus Children Foundation's um, mission 
of developing these novel therapeutics and getting them to these uh, unmet medical needs. So you've been able to put together all this capabilities and expertise through these partnerships. What's the full continuum? Are you able to go from conception to product in treating a patient with what you've come together? Or is there anything that you miss at this point? So realize the field started with parents coming to investigators like myself and asking for help and develop a gene therapy approach for genetic disorder. So that template has been put in place and has been basically the origins of where the field has evolved from. And so you have parents who are very uh, aware and capable and not willing to accept no as an answer and are facilitating. And then you have a lot of the basic researchers, such as myself, that are innovators trying to determine how to most efficiently make this happen. The clinical team are typically uh, universities where you have clinicians that have spent their careers taking care of these patients or seeing them. So we typically have to reach out to locations where these pockets of expertise uh, sit and invite them to collaborate. And they typically become the same settings by which the clinical trials are done, but not necessarily have to be. And then I think once you assemble those three factors, uh, the um, parents, the researchers, and the clinical, you pretty much have the Rolodex. Now you may rotate in and out various clinical uh, players onto the field, but everyone else um, pretty much is the same. And that's been a successful template that's shown up over the years um, and is now being the hub by which the Columbus Children Foundation is locking in place the production part and most of the vector development part. Uh, the parents and the clinical teams are what comes to the foundation with a request or a specific uh, objective that they would like to try to achieve. There's been a lot of interest in so-called N-of-one therapies, individualized treatments. Is that what you're doing, or are you focusing on ultra-rare populations? So we haven't done any of the N-of-one type of experiments. Uh, all of ours have been related to either uh, diseases that are very familiar in the space, again, like muscular dystrophy, or there are ultra-rare diseases like Canavan, where foundations have asked us to help them treat their children. And most, if not all, of ours have been applied towards a small number of these um, patients' indications through the foundation. We haven't done any of the N1s, but I, I have heard of universities that have taken that on as an uh, effort the the foundation's a nonprofit, but what's the business model? How does someone who wants to work with a foundation engage and, and who pays for what? So that's probably best asked of Laura, who has a complete and all understanding that I think can walk you through this, like if you were asking for a recipe for something. Where I sit, I'm primarily involved in the science and the designing of the vectors and then with the production aspect of it, more oversee the science part of it. I know that there are different 
formulas that have come into the Columbus Children Foundation somewhere, they will either have the trial paid for by a university and they only need reagent, others where they need help with both the animal studies as well as the clinical studies. So I, I think it's a it's not a one-shoe-fits-all type of scenario. There are all kind of uh, opportunities that knock on the door in Columbus having most of its strength in the production and the vector development uh, seems to be a bastion for where you go to get access to reagent and to get access to know-how. Uh, and that's provided as part of our portfolio. Uh, again, we assist everybody with either raising money or finding out how to raise money to bring it all to fruition. Uh, now, since the foundation is young, we are independently raising money to kind of um, take on what we call, uh, we, we're trying to eradicate a number of these diseases off the face of the earth. And uh, one of them is amino acid decarboxylase deficiency, which is basically a juvenile's form of Parkinson where the children are frozen, don't they're not able to make dopamine, so they can't move their muscles. And we've been able to, successfully show in animals that if you put this back into the brain, you can kickstart the whole system and regain a lot of activity. And our lead investigator, uh, Chris Bankowitz, has been successful in treating 26 patients now, some in the U.S. and some in another site in Europe, in Warsaw, Poland. And as a result of that, um, we are looking for a kickstart or ways of raising money, there's maybe 90-something patients in the world, and we're up to 26. So we think this is an achievable goal of actually eradicating this genetic disease. And so you can see the excitement of being part of something that's like a moon um, launch um, will be the first and uh, only time that this will ever be done for this indication. And so we're hoping um, the momentum will continue to increase as more and more of these patients are being treated. From a, a regulatory perspective, I imagine you're treating patients through a clinical trial, but is there an intent to win approval for these therapies or just to leave them as experimental therapies? That's a really good question. And the FDA has given us some guidance. They said you can leave it open as a phase one safety trial and just recruit patients and continue to add them on. Because as you know, most of these drugs to get approval, you have to do placebo blinded controls. And we think it's unethical to basically take an individual with a terminal disease and give them a placebo and so that we can determine which one is doing better and which one isn't. Uh, the FDA is also uh, assisted in helping us determine how to do that if we wanted to get the drug approved. And uh, they call it crossover trials where you start one with a placebo and then cross over at a certain amount of time so that you can collect enough data to say, here's the difference, but not basically uh, let a patient go for an extended period of time without access to the drug. So at the moment, most of these efforts are done as simply treat the patient, but the FDA has given us a path 
and if we want to get some of these approved, that um, they will assist us in giving us a roadmap on how to make that happen. They've shown a willingness to use uh, natural histories as a control arm. Are these diseases where natural histories generally exist? That's unfortunately not always the case because the numbers are so few and the patients are sprinkled around the world. There may be clusters depending on the genetic origin uh, in Canada or in Eastern Europe. But you don't typically have enough patients where natural histories is a strong uh, endpoint that you can rely on. Uh, but people are becoming more and more aware of this and are beginning to uh, request for funding and, and opportunities to track these patients at a, a better level so that this can be an option made available. At the moment, Unfortunately, it's not uh, it's not a turnkey approach at this point in time. What's the potential to scale what you do and eliminate time and cost of producing these therapies? Is there a potential to use, say, the same vectors across indications? Are there opportunities in other ways to somehow industrialize the process? So you, you pose a very interesting question, and there are two answers to that. There are ways to expedite it, and that is if you use a viral capsid, which is the outer shell that's going to deliver the payload, and let's say it's for blindness, and you've already done that, and the, and the regulatory community is very familiar with that, and they will give you the ability to say that this is an expedited package because we've already used this before. However, once you change the gene from, let's say, a Leber's congenital amaurosis gene to a retinitis pigmentosa gene, you still have to do what's referred to as the tox toxicity studies and the biodistribution studies to ensure that there's safety attached once you swip, swap the gene out. So if you want to take a different analogy and think about it from a point of view of if you were uh, at a restaurant and you ordered something and this one was mild and this one was extremely hot peppered, you would want to make sure that the hot peppered one was not going to create any other problems after you consumed it. And so we're in that same arena that once the gene changes, we pretty much have to provide a data package that says it's safe and doesn't carry a toxicity portfolio with it. Otherwise, each and every one of these that uses the same production, the same promoter, the same caps, the same formulation, the same route of administration, uh, will only get faster and faster and faster with the FDA because they'll be much, much uh, familiar with what you're trying to achieve. I know you've announced a, a number of projects with patient organizations. What's the range of projects underway today, and what's the capacity to take on more? Uh, good question. So we have, as I mentioned to you, the neurological um, diseases such as amino acid decarboxylase. We have individuals that are uh, have very rare forms of muscular dystrophy that have come to us. And we have others that are dealing with ocular diseases. And so we have the full spectrum of what you would imagine that's out there. 
Um, the thing that's the rate limiting, as you can imagine, is always the data package that one has to assemble for a rare disease to get it in front of the regulatory community so that you can get permission to go into the clinic. And this unfortunately starts with a parent who identifies their child is not uh, keeping up with its peers. And they spend three to five years trying to find someone who can diagnose the disease. Once they find the disease out, they're looking for someone who works on it or treats patients. And then by the time they get that and they start looking at people like us, you have, you have a, a real arduous journey that's already in front of you. So we think uh, with the on, onset of gene therapy, there may be more and more of newborn screening for genetic diseases. There's always been an argument that if you don't have a therapeutic for it, what's the point in screening? You can't do anything anyway. And that's an, always been an ethical argument that people have sat on either side and debated to agnosium. And our mindset, I think as more and more of these drugs are able to tackle these diseases, there has to be a, a parallel approach of basically doing newborn screening so that we can catch them early do the natural history studies that you're talking about, and then make concerted efforts to try to eradicate the ones that are within our, our reach. And I think this is gonna come about, uh, you're seeing the early versions of unfolding of Gene Therapy 101. I think uh, when a few more versions of this come out, a number of these things will be well-trodden and it'll be much easier to uh, do them in parallel or do them more efficiently. What's the opportunity or likelihood of, of getting payers to step up and make this a, a cost-effective approach for them? Well, I think you should look at this a little bit more about what our society has done for um, these genetic diseases in a palliative way. If you are a parent and has a child with muscular dystrophy, um, they will lose ambulation between the ages of six and nine and go into a wheelchair. And these wheelchairs are made available to these families. And typically, their automobiles are adjusted so that they can take their kids uh, to centers for treatments and to uh, other activities that are necessary. So if you envision the amount of money that's already being committed to maintaining a number of these um, children with these orphan diseases. It's somewhat ironic to think that we wouldn't pay for having them removed completely um, from that type of obligation. Realize that with the palliative care today, most muscular dystrophy patients with Duchenne can live well into their late 20s and early 30s. They typically succumb to uh, heart failure uh, because it's again another muscle, but you got about 30 years of which you have a dedicated um, healthcare concern, and they only progress to worse and worse state of, like I said, wheelchairs to losing upper arm movement to eventually being tube fed and on respirators. And if you think about 25 years of paying a medical bill like that versus a one time treatment where someone goes home and they become a healthy participate in society, uh, it doesn't take too much to figure out that this might be an easy one to begin to realize if we pay for it, uh, we can remove this economic burden. 
few people understand that 45% of the hospital cost today is related to children with genetic diseases. And, and there's an opportunity to remove that burden. Now, a, a common sense way to think about that as a society, we're all riding down the road in a van and three of the tires are working, but one of them's flat. And so your choice is to continue to ride with a flat tire, which you know you can get there, but at the same time, it may not be a comfortable ride. Or you can pull over and fix it, and then everybody can participate in that uh, journey. So at this juncture, you know, we see the orphan diseases as a flat tire that we didn't have the ability to fix before, but now it's becoming available and it is. Uh, short-sighted to think that we should not pull over and fix this once and for all. I know your company, Aspire, has played a, a critical role in the foundation. It was just announced that Bayer is acquiring the company. Will this have any effect on its ability to work with the foundation going forward? No. Actually, one of the most exciting things about Bayer's acquisition is they were in favor of us continuing the foundation activities and actually encouraged us to keep it going, which I think sent a very clear signal that they uh, see the vision that we have laid out and they are on board with what we're trying to achieve. And I realize what you may, um, what you may figure out in ultra rare disease today may be the same technology that you use for a disease like uh, Alzheimer's or Parkinson, where there's millions of individuals. Uh, and so there's, there's opportunity across the board. And I think Bayer is very strategic in looking at Asbio as a launching pad for not only the genetic diseases that have um, um, financial opportunity, but more importantly, looking at all of the diseases as a platform to learn how do we make these type of therapeutics accessible to the larger uh, number of masses of people out there. Jude Smolsky, Chairman and Chief Scientific Officer of the Columbus Children's Foundation. Jude, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. I very much appreciate it. Have a great day. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The BioReport, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.